It's go time. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon here along with Heath Graham. Pat is not available tonight. As we go to show, we have some breaking news. The Hamilton Tiger Cats have proven definitely that you should never wash your darks and your lights in the same laundry load because they always turn out gray. No, 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 Don, Don, the breaking news is out of Montreal. Oh, 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 right, right. Okay, let's get right to it. The Alouettes have made a coaching change. Danny Machocha, the general manager, has dismissed Kahari Jones and defensive coordinator Baron Miles. Machocha now will take over as head coach in place of Jones, and Noel Thorpe is being brought up to be the defensive coordinator. It's been a while since Machocha has been a head coach in the league. That was back when he was with Edmonton. This is big news. It was a bit of a shock to me, if not for a couple of last-minute field goals or missed field goals, the Alouettes would be sitting at 3-1 and one instead of 1-3. and three. Jones's overall record is 18-18 and 18 if you discount the two playoff losses. They did make two Eastern semifinals in a row. Jones came in under, I would say, tough situation when Mike Sherman had been fired and Jones was announced the head coach in 2019 in June of that year, just prior to the season starting. Baron Miles was with the team, and he eventually gets the defensive coordinator position at the end of 2020 in December. So this was his second year in that job. The Alouettes, relatively speaking on defense, were middle of the road in terms of stats. They were high in sacks, but a little bit less in takeaways and overall uh, yards allowed. Do you think that Miles was dismissed because maybe he had loyalty to Kahari Jones? You couldn't take one without the other? That would certainly be my best guess. We saw when they hosted the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, that Montreal defense absolutely gave Saskatchewan fits all night long. It looks like he's a bit of a casualty of his association with Kahari Jones at this point. Noel Thorpe is moving back up the ladder to defensive coordinator is not a bad move. We saw... He was in contention for a head coaching position in Edmonton prior to the 2021 season. Didn't get the job and had to kind of reevaluate his situation. I think this is a, a stepping stone for Noel Thorpe in going back after head coaching positions in the future. I'm curious to see how dedicated Danny Machocha is to the head coaching position again. As you mentioned, it's been several years since he's been on the sidelines of a CFL team. He's definitely capable as a head coach and will jump into that role right away, but is it just an interim position to kind of get them through the rest of this season? He has defined it as so at this point in time, but as you and I kind of mused and maybe speculated back at the beginning of the season, we were wondering how well this relationship was going to go and whether or not there was a clock ticking for Kahari Jones, who had a contract that was expiring at the end of the season anyway, there were rumblings that Machocha wanted to get back on the sidelines and become a coach again. He did well with the Université de Montreal Carabin, bringing them to a Vanier Cup, winning a couple of Dunsmores. In the process, in his nine-year tenure there, 
he knows how to coach. He obviously won a Grey Cup with the Edmonton franchise in 05, his first year there. Where do you go from here? If you're Machocha, do you really want to just finish this season or do you really want to stay on the sideline? I guess it's going to come down to who's available for other candidates as well. Any general manager wants to put their stamp on the franchise. And sometimes when they get hired into a role where there's an existing coaching staff, they're hesitant to make a move right away, but they've always got it in their mind that this is the hand that was dealt to me. It's not necessarily the hand I want to keep. And that's maybe playing a little bit into this as well. I guess the question then becomes what happened this year that was so different than any other year. Montreal traditionally with Kahari Jones as their head coach has started slow and then has picked up as the season has gone on. It's almost atypical of the way they play the game. So many times the Alouettes start slow out of the gate in a contest and are there at the finish and sometimes pulling off the miracle comeback. They did that against Calgary, against Winnipeg. This could also be a difference of opinion as to who the starting quarterback should be. We've got a situation in Montreal right now where you've got Vernon Adams Jr. and Trevor Harris, who are both proven starters in this league. Quite different styles of quarterback. Does that play into it a little bit? It's a possibility. It could be a philosophical difference between the two. I'm pretty sure that Kahari Jones is a Vernon Adams Jr. believer, more so than he is a Trevor Harris. I kind of heard rumblings that Machocha definitely has more faith in Harris. You're entitled to your opinion. But when you've got these two people in charge and they disagree, then that does leave the question going forward. If you've got Machocha anointing, let's say, Trevor Harris, what do you do with Vernon Adams Jr.? Does he become trade bait? It's quite possible. We had talked when they re-signed Trevor Harris in the offseason that it seemed like a bit of a surprise to us. But now hearing those rumblings that maybe Machocha is a bigger fan of Trevor Harris than he is Vernon Adams. It, it could leave Vernon Adams on the outside looking in. A possible landing point for him might be those Hamilton Tiger Cats. Machocha's coaching career in the CFL, as we mentioned, was a Grey Cup victory in his first year. Overall, he finished 33-38-1. Respectable. He has now a 1-3 football team that he has to do something with to motivate them, if you want to call it that get moving towards a playoff push. They, as you indicated, a field goal here or there, and they're maybe three and one, not one and three. Yeah, it's it's going to be a challenge to refocus. They are one and three. You're now shaking things up like this. I'm curious to see what happens with Anthony Calvillo as well. He was brought in to help with the offense and coach those quarterbacks we haven't heard an announcement yet, but does he move into that offensive coordinator role now as Kahari Jones is, is no longer calling the plays? That is an interesting speculation. I doubt that will happen. I think Machocha will grab those reins and run the offense. If it does, I, I don't know if Calvillo was really prepping to be the offensive coordinator in Montreal. He had it thrust upon him once before. Now, he went to the college ranks, worked with the Caravan, so he does have a relationship with Machocha. My guess is if there's a person with whom he feels comfortable, it's Machocha, and maybe then, yeah, he trusts me enough, I can probably give this another go. Canadian quarterbacks. Are we seeing the next Russ Jackson, if you will? Nathan Rourke has continued his 
torrid pace at the start of this season and put up another fantastic performance in the Lions win. And we also, on the same weekend, saw Trey Ford get his first start as the Edmonton Elks quarterback and lead them to their first victory of the season. A surprise announcement for many that Trey Ford was going to get the start, but he did not at all look out of place. He looked like he felt comfortable running that offense, used his legs when he had to, not necessarily by design, which is, I think, preferable because if you start doing it by design, you shorten careers. But when he had to get out of that pocket, he did. It was a bold move for the Elks to go with a raw rookie Canadian quarterback, of all things, to try to turn their season around. And it certainly worked out for them. Not Nathan Rourke-type numbers on offense, but again, he played smart football. He ran when he had to. He made good throws, good reads, and did not look out of place out there at all. He has literally dominated the stat sheet every time that he's played. The Lions as a team are racing through the stats and are still ranked number one, despite the fact that they've only played three games where others have played four. They're averaging over 500 yards of offense per game. That's just stunning. It is. We'll see if injury bugs start to catch up to them a little bit. We know Brian Burnham, is out of commission here for a little bit with some rib injuries, but other players have continued to step up. And one of the fantasy surprises of the week has to be Keon Hatcher in that receiving core for the BC Lions. And he was really the the stat leader for the Lions, but again, they spread the ball around well and continue to roll on offense. One of the things that Nathan Rourke is facing right now is this, I call it the yoke of expectation. And... By that, I mean there are a lot of people pointing to him saying he's the next Russ Jackson, he's the next hope for the Canadian quarterback in the CFL. Rourke didn't ask for that. He didn't ever cultivate that. He just wanted to be able to play football and to start. He got that opportunity with the Lions. Expectations come in so many forms. One set is what the coach has for you. Another set is what you have for yourself. And the third and fourth set are public and media. He is so hyped. He is so much out there right now that it can be a distraction. And he has spoken to this, but he's the type of person I think that's so well-grounded that he's not going to let this bother him because he knows, first and foremost, you don't win, nothing else matters. I've seen some video clips of Nathan Rourke putting in extra running drills after practice. The rest of the team is gone. He continues to go through the motions on the field, which shows a work ethic that he wants to be a champion and he wants to be successful. One of the big question marks, given the way that he and that offense rolled through their first two wins of the season, was what was going to happen if he faced some adversity. And we saw finally a little bit of an issue where he threw two interceptions in in the game this past week and went right back out there and led the team to some scoring drives after. How he handles adversity seems to be he's got the ability to shake it off, go back out there and get the job done. And that's exactly what you want to see from a starting quarterback. He has done everything I think you could ask of a quarterback. Rourke by doing that 
getting over those interceptions and making some positive plays and going out and scoring. He champions the team in a sense because the team starts to believe that no matter what happens out there, we can still come back from it. And the Lions haven't faced much in the way of adversity until they faced Ottawa and they did struggle for a little while. The Red Blacks defense got to them. They got Money Hunter had a night, two interceptions and a fumble recovery. Those types of stats indicate that the Lions were up against it, but they did find a way to win the game. Trey Ford, same thing with Hamilton as his opponent. He had to overcome some adversity. The team was behind. Now, it was a defensive score that won the game for the Elks, but Trey Ford stayed within himself. And if you listen to the post-game interviews with both Rourke and Ford, both comment about, yes, I did some good things, but there's a lot of stuff that I could improve upon. That, to me, says you're grounded and you understand it's going to take work and good habits to get better. I'm not worried about the mental health of Nathan Rourke from that perspective. He seems to be quite grounded, as you say. My concern is how the fans and the media react when he has a bad game. I I don't anticipate he's going to be able to keep this pace up forever. It would be phenomenal if he did. There are going to be nights where he struggles to move the ball, maybe does make a few more mistakes, throw some interceptions, fumble, that sort of thing. And it's it's how the fans, how quick are fans going to be turning on him saying, see, we know a Canadian quarterback can't be successful. How does the media report on that? And, and those are the things that can kind of hurt a team and, and the league as a whole once that negativity starts trickling in. Again, if you've got the proper leadership from coaches, from veteran players, all of that can be handled and managed. He has to have some help, though, from the Lions organization to deflect some of that, to cut down maybe some of the interviews that he has to do so that he gets more time to focus on what he needs to and improve himself and improve the team as it is. Let's face it, since he's been the starting quarterback, they've put up over 30 points a game. They've won all four games. They have amassed huge passing stats. This goes back to last season. Rourke has worked hard for what he's got. He worked hard to improve his passing accuracy. He's up over 80% now. In college, he was around 58. 80% is an unbelievable stat. No human being, I think, can keep that up for a season. But even if you stay above 65. For sure. And one of the benefits for Nathan Rourke was he got that year under his belt working with Michael Riley. He got the start early in the season last year because of Riley's injury came in at the end of the season, had a phenomenal game, and has carried that forward. Trey Ford is in a completely different situation. The Edmonton Elks brought a ton of quarterbacks to camp. They weren't sure what direction they were going. Nick Arbuckle seemed to be the guy at the start of the season, but they kept Trey Ford on the regular roster. He's now gotten his chance only four weeks into the season. Has he learned enough to be the starting quarterback in Edmonton. I expect to see some more mistakes along the way. We know Edmonton as a team has struggled out of the gate. Nick Arbuckle didn't seem to be the answer, but there's going to be a lot of expectation on Trey Ford to be the guy. And I just don't know if he's got the support system in place yet to be successful like Nathan Rourke is. Stephen McAdoo is an unsung hero in Edmonton. You never hear his name. He's 
been at the side of Chris Jones for Chris Jones's head coaching career, McAdoo has generated a lot of great offensive teams and quarterbacks that are typically recognized as one of the top in that given season. Everybody has bumps in the road. He had a couple with Saskatchewan, but by the time he left the Rough Riders, that offense was gelling and Cody Fajardo was being talked about as MOP. With that type of stewardship, Ford will be okay. He's going to have his moments, but if McAdoo can stay with him, even without that, I think Ford's going to be fine. He's he's bet on himself in the past to be a quarterback in, in U-sport. He did it. He made it. He was successful. He can do it again. He was a nice, shining, bright spot for the Elks to come out of that game. He He's generated some talk. I'm sure there's going to be more interest now that the Elks are coming home to play because Trey Ford is going to be the starting quarterback. You think he's anointed as the starting quarterback now? Over, under 10.5 starts? for Trey Ford this season? I would put money on it. The quarterback that we haven't talked about yet, we need to talk about, is the one that we saw in tears on the bench after the loss to the Edmonton Elks in Hamilton. Dane Evans has thrown eight interceptions, maybe more importantly has given up four fumbles, two of which were taken to the house. Very tough start to the season for Dane Evans. Not something that I saw coming at all of the eight interceptions five of them have hit Hamilton receivers in the hands I'm beginning to wonder if there's something in his delivery that is causing some of these I I I just as I mentioned previously I hate that that stat is hung on the quarterback when it's a tipped ball the fumbles are definitely a concern as well when he gets out of the pocket and starts to run he needs to protect the ball we've seen how that came back to bite Hamilton in this game this last week. And I hope for Dane Evans' sake, he's able to shake these off. The thought about Dane Evans was that he had a very powerful arm. Sometimes that's a great asset because you can throw the ball deep. But the other side of that equation is that if you're putting so much zip on it and you're only having to throw it 15 to 20 yards, if it's coming in too hot, those receivers may not be able to handle it finesse may be more required. And if he hasn't learned how to finesse his throws yet, that could be leading to these tip sixes, as we called them last week in our show. The likelihood of that happening exponentiates because the harder it comes at a receiver, the tougher it is to manage. And he looked absolutely despondent on the sidelines at the end of that game. You know, you, you can't help but feel bad for somebody that wears their heart on their sleeve like Dane Evans does. It was it was very crushing. It was reminiscent in a way of Rene Paredes at the end of the playoff run for the Calgary Stampeders last year when he missed those field goals. These guys put everything on the line week after week. And it was a great show of sportsmanship for Nick Arbuckle to come over at the end of the game and kind of console Dane Evans on the sideline. They worked out a lot together in the offseason, have gotten to know each other and become friends. So you see that fraternity of quarterbacks nobody else can really fully understand what these guys go through unless you're out there in that same position so great sportsmanship by Nick Arbuckle and and hopefully as I said that this is something that Dane Evans can get past and move forward Hamilton's quarterback situation beyond Dane Evans they had that 
duo of of Evans and Jeremiah Mazzoli for a couple of seasons. Mazzoli's now in Ottawa. What does what does that leave for the Hamilton Tiger Cats? I made the comment at the time to my wife as we were watching the end of the game that that could be the new quarterback consoling the old quarterback. Nick Arbuckle's days in Edmonton could be numbered. Hamilton could be a likely landing spot. Hamilton going into a bye. What's to say that they don't bring in Arbuckle? Halfback Chris Edwards, who was suspended after last season for getting into an altercation with a fan following the East Final, has had his suspension cut from six games to three. The CFL giving Edwards another chance to prove and having learned from his mistake. It also speaks to the CFL's code of conduct that they're not going to tolerate rude, discourteous, drunken, bullying behavior from fans either towards players. There has to be a line drawn where you have to respect the people that perform for you. And if you don't like the result, that doesn't give you the opportunity to go after them. I can definitely see both arguments on this one that, yes, he should serve his full suspension or no, getting it cut down to three games is adequate. And when you look at how short a CFL season is, it's only 18 games. Even missing three is a substantial chunk of the season. I hope for Chris Edwards' sake that he has learned from this. I know we discussed the incident when it happened and the the blowback from it last season, I would lean towards putting a majority of the blame for the situation on the fan that was involved in this altercation. Football's an emotional game. This player just came through a very tough playoff game and you've got some fan provoking the situation, hurling insults his way. It wasn't the correct reaction by Chris Edwards, but it was an understandable reaction in a way. There has to be some civility in all of this. Just because you have a ticket, it doesn't give you an absolute right to do what you want to do. You have to respect A, those around you, and B, those on the field. Second down. The West has been dominant so far in the Canadian Football League. 12 wins and one loss versus their Eastern counterparts in interconference play. The only team to have bested the West, Montreal in Montreal over Saskatchewan. Thursday night, we had another one of those interconference games with the Lions in Ottawa. Ottawa with the two weeks off, BC with the short week and only one practice. Yet it was the Lions that prevailed 34 to 31. And again, as we alluded to in the beginning of the show, Nathan Rourke, star of the show again, 23 of 31, 359 yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions. Jeremiah Mazzoli has 14 to 27 for 162, less than half of the numbers that he had been used to in his first two weeks. Jeremiah Mazzoli did not look quite as sharp this game as he did in his, his two previous games against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I don't know. We could do an entire show talking about what we've seen from Nathan Rourke so far this season. He also had five carries for 87 yards and a 50-yard touchdown scamper. Rourke is killing you with his arm, but also showing that when given the opportunity, he can run with the ball as well. James Butler had another 63 yards rushing and a touchdown 
for the BC Lions as well. So they are firing offensively, certainly on all cylinders so far this season. When you can post 150 yards rushing, that typically means that your offense is doing very well. William Powell, and we'll get to this in another stat, averaged five yards per carry, but he only had 11 carries, so he gets 55 yards. Jalen Acklin had a night to forget, targeted nine times, only three catches for 24 yards. He has shown flashes in the first two games this season of being the breakout receiver for the Ottawa Red Blacks. And to see him have a night like this is a pretty tough pill for him to swallow. Darvin Adams had one of his best games so far this season, 92 yards receiving on five catches. But something was a little bit off in that Ottawa offense this time around. And unfortunately, they just could not keep pace with what BC was throwing at them. Fantasy darling, as you alluded to earlier, Keon Atcher, seven receptions, 166 yards. Longest was 71 and a touchdown. He came out of nowhere, and the touchdown that he had, it seemed like he was the only one on the field as there was a mix-up in the Ottawa secondary, and he was left wide open. Ottawa's defensive backs were, I thought, one of the strengths going into the season. Mistakes are going to happen, and this is certainly a mistake by that Ottawa secondary, they'll watch the film, figure out what went wrong, and hopefully for their sake, they will straighten this out. A 71-yard touchdown is a pretty explosive and pretty exciting play. We move to Friday night. For Hamilton, it was supposed to be finally the game that they could break through. But as we talked about in our first segment, Dane Evans has a critical fumble late in the game. Edmonton scores a late touchdown to win 29-25. Great, as we mentioned, great to see another Canadian quarterback out there on the field leading his team to victory. I agree with you. I believe that Trey Ford is going to be the quarterback of record for the Edmonton Elks for the majority of the season moving forward here now. It appears that he's shown enough to get the ball going into the next week. Not a ton of passing yards only 159 yards but he spread the ball around well I think that's something else that's important to look at seven receivers had catches in this game targeted eight receivers so uh, a good opportunity for him to spread the ball around see who he gels with and it looks like Kenny Lawler four attempts four receptions was the guy that was most successful Uh, a good showing for Trey Ford. Ford looked comfortable he moved the pocket around He did a lot of things that you would expect of a rookie, but he did a lot of things that you'd expect of a player that had been around for a few years. He was, in my mind, a pleasant surprise for Elks fans. It was a welcome surprise. They needed something to hang on to going forward, given the schedule that they've got to face in the next few weeks. Ford provides some of that faith, and we should see that in an uptick in numbers at Commonwealth Stadium. We know that Chris Jones loves his defense. We know that he expects a lot from his defense. And his defense, for the most part, really performed. Hamilton does get 302 yards of offense. Possession time, Edmonton actually outclocked Hamilton by over three minutes. And that is huge when you're on the road. And turnovers. The, the difference in turnovers in a game, who wins the turnover battle, generally wins the game. And as we mentioned two interceptions and a very costly fumble for that Hamilton offense. That was the difference maker. We saw the defense score score a touchdown that was 
basically the seal the win for the Edmonton Elks. And if you're not protecting the ball, it's going to come back and haunt you nine times out of ten. Evans fumble with just a minute 47 left. And it was it seemed like an innocuous play. He just rolled off rolled over to his right, but didn't tuck the ball away. And it was batted out of his hands and picked up and run for the score. Is Hamilton as bad as 0-4? It's a very tough question to answer. I, I saw somebody ask in the post game of, of the last game of the week that we'll get to here later is is Winnipeg the worst 4-0 team that you've seen? And I guess how does Hamilton stack up as an 0-4 team right now? They've been in games and it's just been costly mistakes. So there's a, a saying that good teams find a way to win. And right now, Hamilton just doesn't seem to have that ability ability to find the way. Saturday, Montreal goes to Saskatchewan to play the Rough Riders. Stick with the Rough Riders for most of the game until the third quarter, and then the wheels come off. Rough Riders pound 21 points down, score 30 in the second half, and walk away with a 41-20 win. Cody Fajardo, 18 completions, 224 yards. Trevor Harris, 18 completions, 198 yards, and two interceptions. Again, the turnovers are the difference maker in this one. They're going to come back and haunt you. We seem to have a very lofty expectation of quarterbacks in this league, and Nathan Rourke seems to be the only one living up to those expectations right now. There's a lot of chatter, again, at at halftime of... Cody Fajardo's performance, whether we'd seen enough that it was was time to make a quarterback change in the second half, he came out and had an amazing third quarter and did what he had to do, put up 21 points in that third quarter, and that was the difference. I don't know if there's any question marks about Cody Fajardo moving forward after the way he turned things around in the second half of this game. Nick Marshall for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders had a 90-yard interception return for a touchdown, and that ended any Montreal hopes of coming back in that football game. The Alouettes, up until this point, had lost by three, lost by one, one big. They seemed to be the team that was just on the edge and were ready to break through, and I I kind of mused in this last podcast, if they can do it, what does that leave Saskatchewan? Are they now no longer a contender? Well, the Rough Riders found a way to make it happen at home. The Alouettes now are on the downside of that uh, standings looking up. Although it isn't a huge hill to climb, it still is a hill to climb. Monday, a rare Monday football game. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers were in Toronto to take on the Toronto Argonauts. Winnipeg jumps out to an early lead. Defensive score, of course, helping get them there. The Argos, we saw on the sideline, had some discourse. Brandon Banks and Philip Blake were going after each other, especially after Brandon Banks had a tipped interception down near the goal line. In the second half, the law firm of McLeod Bethel Thompson almost got that team a win. It was really looking after the first half of that game against Winnipeg that it was going to be Chad Kelly time in the second half for the Argonauts. They came out and Dinwiddie, Ryan Dinwiddie trusted Thompson enough to give him the ball And he led a couple of successful drives and got them back in the game. That's probably done enough to get McLeod Bethel-Thompson the next start as well. 
the Argos still found a way to get down the field and score a touchdown and set up for the tying convert in the final minute of play. Boris Beatty falls to the same issue that David Cote had faced not two weeks before. You're kicking towards Lake Ontario at that end. Those winds swirl all over the place, just hooked it left. Beatty was apoplectic, as was Cote when it happened to him for Montreal. Winnipeg takes the favor and takes the victory. All we know for certain is if BD made that kick, the game was going to go to overtime. Who knows what would have happened in that overtime. Winnipeg could have gone out, scored a touchdown, got the two points, stopped Toronto, and it's it's a moot point. Winnipeg being 4-0, as I said before, are they the, the worst 4-0 team you've ever seen? They continue to get themselves in a position to win a game. If you continue to get yourself there, good things will happen. They were fortunate that this one did not end up going to overtime. That defense for Winnipeg stepped up early in the game. You can't say enough about that defense. However, Toronto, in that last minute of the game, marched the length of the field, scored that touchdown, and were it not for the the missed convert, who knows what the end result was going to be. You do raise a great question. Had Toronto tied, what would have been overtime? We don't know, but this is part of the speculation. And then the other part of the equation is, do you ever, if you're Toronto, take the ball at the three and go for two and end it right there? They moved kicking converts back to the 25-yard line, so you're kicking from the 32. Every once in a while, what they ask for, they get. That is a miss. May not be at the most opportune time, but it does happen. If you're hitting 90% of those or 60% of twos, in this case, which way do you go? I'm in favor of going for two earlier in the game. At this point where it's an opportunity to force overtime, if you make what should be a fairly standard point after kick, I believe that's the right call to make. It's a very gutsy call to go for two and the win. If you make it, Great, and it's a huge boost to your team if you get stopped. Harris, 22 carries for 111 yards, averaging about five yards a carry. Remember I talked earlier about who else was getting five yards a carry but only had 11 rushes? Well, here's Harris, double the rushes, has a pretty good day at the office with over 100 yards rushing. There was a huge booth replay that we need to touch upon, and that is the Brandon Banks touchdown when he strips the ball from... Damaris Houston. A lot of debate has been going back and forth about whether or not that should have been called down, that should have been, Banks should have been called down at the one, whether that should have been a touchdown. And it all comes down to the definition of an incomplete forward pass. And this is Article 6, subsection E. While in midair, a receiver of either team who has firm control of the ball but loses possession of the ball when that player's feet or other part of the body hits the ground with or without contact by any opponent, that is an incompletion. So in CFL definition, as Houston comes down with the ball to the ground and Banks is getting his arm in there, he's not surviving contact. And Banks stripping the ball from him and maintaining possession in the end zone constitutes surviving contact banks deserved and got the touchdown this is another one of those really close plays and had they called it an an interception 
I don't know if there's enough evidence to overturn that and change it to a touchdown. They called it the touchdown and there doesn't seem to be enough evidence to overturn it the other way. There was a lot of conversation about down by contact. And as you've described, it's surviving that contact with the ground. Granted, Brandon Banks did a phenomenal job of not letting that ball touch the ground. He had it between his knees as he's rolling backwards and scoops it back up into his arms to maintain possession. So that was a very heads-up play by Brandon Banks. From everything that I've seen in every angle, I couldn't disagree with the call. That was the call they made, and there wasn't enough evidence to overturn it. As I said, had they called it down by contact and an interception, I probably would have been okay with that whichever way they called it on the field, I think the booth would have got it right and got Banks his touchdown. Houston, yes, is coming down with the football. Goes to ground, but Banks has his arm in there, and as soon as he hits the ground, Banks is yanking at it, and it's coming loose. And within a split second, it's gone. Take Banks away from the situation. If Houston falls to the ground and the ball squirts out on its own, it's an incompletion. There's no debate. So the only thing that changed anything was Banks reaching in and stealing it from him. Yes, but does that also constitute contact? And I guess that's where the the question comes is what's down by contact. It's not contact because you have an established possession. You can only have down by contact when you have possession. So by logical extension, Houston doesn't have possession. Therefore, he cannot be down by contact. It was really interesting following this game on social media because there's a lot of current and former players that have made calls both ways in this situation. There are people saying there's no way that could possibly be a touchdown. And there's other people, again, applauding Banks and, and saying he made a great play. And And it boils down to, once again, a play isn't final until you hear that whistle or until they've signaled a touchdown. We, we, we talked in a previous game about, about Dane Evans against Calgary, where he hit that line of scrimmage it looked like he was stopped and the forward momentum wasn't going to carry him any further. The whistle did not blow and the Calgary Stampeders defense made a heads up play, grabbing that ball and running it the other way for a touchdown. You, you can't quit on a play in the CFL. And I've said before, sometimes officials have a tendency to blow the whistle too early on what should be a fumble. This one, they let play out. That Dane Evans rush attempt, they let play out and at the end of the day, make the right call. This is a great talking point. It's also a great learning point. Third down. Three games in the Canadian Football League this weekend. It's a rarity when we have three teams that do not play. One game per night, which is going to be really sweet. We'll start in Edmonton on Thursday. The Elks and the Stampeders. Second meeting of the season for these two. Calgary won 30-23 in Cowtown just a couple weeks ago. The Elks now coming off a win. Calgary is minus 3.5 favorites going into this game. We'll see what Trey Ford brings in his second start of the season, assuming he gets the ball against the Calgary Stampeders. At this point, I have to favor Calgary to win this one and cover the spread. I, I just don't see enough from Edmonton yet at this point. They did beat uh, Hamilton Tiger Cats team that kind of beat themselves as well. So I don't know if I've seen enough offensively for Edmonton or realistically defensively to keep up with Bo Levi Mitchell 
and that Calgary offense. So this one is is Calgary's game. If Edmonton had not won in Hamilton, I probably would have been totally fine going with the Stampeders. Edmonton is finding their way, and if that is the case in terms of betting, they are a threat at home, which is something they haven't been for a long, long time. (sighs) This is tough. Now we're recording, we used to be recording on Wednesdays, now we're doing it on Tuesdays. So these odds are very preliminary, and we don't have any of the injury reports and everything else that comes with. If Edmonton wasn't so bad at home these last couple of years, I would lean towards them, but I'm going to say Calgary, but not the cover. And Pat sent in something about Tom Wilkinson and Jeff Garcia. I'm not sure what he's getting at with this one. I have no idea which way he's leaning. Well, we'll get to his picks after we get through ours. Uh, Wilkinson and Garcia did not ever see each other on the football field. So I'm not sure where he's going with this. That's why I'm so confused. No kidding. Game two. It's a Friday night affair in Regina where the Ottawa Red Blacks come west to face the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Ottawa traditionally plays well in Regina. The Rough Riders are 7.5 favorites. At home against Ottawa, a team that hasn't won yet, the Rough Riders coming off a big win themselves. I think Saskatchewan can cover. They have won big every time they've played at home this year. This is a tough one for me. These are, are two teams that have a lot of question marks that have yet to be answered in my mind. Jeremiah Mazzoli looked really solid in his first two starts of the season that were losses. Not so great in his third start. Looking for that first win of the season. Saskatchewan had a great second half, seemed to have got things rolling a little bit. I don't like the seven and a half point spread. I'm going to take the Rough Riders to eke out a win in this one. Pat, again, musing about the quarterbacks in this game, and he's referring to Rick Casada and Joe Barnes. I'm not clear where he's going with this. Again, these two players never faced each other on a football field. Casada with the Ottawa Rough Riders of the day. And now obviously he must be talking about Joe Barnes when he was with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in the early 80s. Third game, Winnipeg Blue Bombers undefeated. Go into British Columbia, Vancouver's BC Play Stadium to face the undefeated BC Lions. If there was a great game to put your circle on the calendar around, this is it. Two undefeated, really powerful teams for different reasons going at it. Although BC's defense is this year ranked number one, they also have a high octane and a very high powered offense to go with it. A rare combination on a football team. The Lions are 2.5 favorites. That shows a lot of respect for Winnipeg. Let's remember, though, that the Blue Bombers have just played on Monday. This is a Saturday game. They only get the one practice because they have to travel across country, get to Winnipeg, practice, and then travel out to the coast. A lot of time zones involved here as well. This is certainly going to be a a tough test for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. As you mentioned, a short week, lots of travel, a couple of key injuries in this last game as well. Kyrie Wilson is now on the six-game injured list 
looks like an Achilles issue with him. That linebacking core is a little bit depleted for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. We saw Jamarcus Hardrick limping, so that offensive line is beat up as well. And I cannot continue to doubt or question the capabilities of Nathan Rourke. Winnipeg's offense hasn't shown a lot so far this season, and BC's defense is much improved from where they were a year ago. It pains me to say it, but I think I've got to take the Lions to not only win this one, but to probably beat the two and a half point spread. There's a reason why they're favorites from what they've shown so far this season. If Winnipeg can eke out a win and the upset, they are right back in that talk of the Grey Cup favorites. But at this point, given all of these factors, I think BC's got this one. BC is averaging over 500 yards a game. They have put up at least 30 points in every game that they've been playing. This is home. If we remember the last three times they've been at home, they've won by at least 30 points. Not saying that Winnipeg is going to be subject to that, but this is a huge ask, especially the injury status that you have just talked about and their number two receiver, wearing number two, tweaked his ankle against the Argonauts, Greg Ellingson. That's an already weakened receiving core, now hobbling 2.5. I think the Lions can cover that at home. If Winnipeg's got a chance in this game, that defense has to step up. One thing going for them is we know Willie Jefferson and that massive wingspan knocks a lot of passes down. Nathan Rourke isn't the tallest quarterback in the CFL. If they can contain and wreak some havoc and really test Nathan Rourke, they've got a chance, but they're going to have to keep this a low-scoring affair because, as I mentioned earlier, that Winnipeg offense isn't really scaring anybody right now. That defense has to win them this one if they've got a, got a shot. Now, Pat has sent along some things to watch for. Tommy Clements versus Joe Cap, quarterbacking rivalry. Of course, again, these two never played against each other. Clements being with the Bombers in the 80s, Joe Cap playing with the Lions in the 60s. Pat's just really messing with us. But let's get to his picks. Pat, in the opening game, takes the Las Vegas Posse to cover. In the second game, takes the Shreveport Pirates to cover. And in the third game, the Sacramento Gold Miners to cover. Expecting big things from David Archer in that third game. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching.